My name is Chris Pardo. I'm a partner at Hunt and Andrews Kurth. Um, we've uh, put together a strong panel to um, address issues uh, facing both employers and employees as, um, as we begin to go back into the workplace, if you weren't already, into a uh, post-COVID world. So, um, Barbara, Chris, do you, do you all want to introduce yourselves? Sure. Um, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Barbara Robb. Um, I'm a partner with Hartley Michon Robb. I practice primarily plaintiff side employment law. Hi, everyone. Chris. So, um, uh, uh, I'm counsel at Foley HOAG here in Boston. I'm a management side employee and together um, with Barbara, I'm co-chair of the uh, BBA's um, Labor and Employment Steering Committee. Great. And um, so I'm going to take the first um, discussion topic and, you know, Barbara, Chris, if you want to jump in, feel free to jump in. Um, the first uh, issue that we're dealing with, um, you know, on the employer side really, is reducing risk caused by COVID and then maintaining productivity in a post-COVID world. Um, and we're gonna go through telework and then coming back into the actual workplace. Um, so the first big issue we're seeing is telework uh, plan for wage and hour issues. So the same wage and hour laws that have always applied still apply. So if you have non-exempt employees, they need to be properly timekeeping. The burden is still on the employer to keep time properly. Um, working off the clock, uh, meal breaks. There's still a meal break law um, in Massachusetts, even if the employee is home, you have to provide the meal break. Uh, tracking overtime and for exempt employees, exempt employees still are entitled to reimbursements, etc. Um, we have been recommending that job descriptions are revised in light of the possibility that remote work becomes a more permanent uh, part of a job. Um, we, it, you know, Barbara is going to talk about um, the sort of the dovetail between the ADA and remote work. And then, um, and that actually is a big issue with respect to job descriptions and then coordinating uh, with IT to ensure data security and protection. And that's a big issue because, you know, an, the employee is the potential greatest source of risk of a data breach, um, either purposeful or accidental. And now with the employees outside of the workplace and on their own systems, it just puts an additional burden on an employer. Um, so what can we do to um, maintain productivity despite, um, despite being remote? It clearly set expectations for remote workers. Send them a code of conduct reminder. Update your handbook to reflect the new realities of the COVID world to account for telework and related issues. Monitor productivity in a neutral, fair way. Um, you're not going to be able to see the employee anymore necessarily in the same way that you did before. Um, you need to treat them as you would if they were in person and they need to be treated blindly. Um, you know, as Barbara will talk about, you know, without any uh, view to who they are individually as opposed to the output that they are putting out there. Uh, these questions and these issues, they change depending on um, what your work site actually looks like 
and what the jobs really are. And as Barbara's going to talk about, plan to deal with a new wave of accommodation requests um, now that you have employees adjusting to work from home life. You want employees, if you're coming back to work, so bringing employees back into the workplace, um, you need them to feel safe. Okay. So if they don't feel safe, they're not going to want to come back. Uh, they're not going to be productive. They'll be less efficient. There's only so much that an employer can do, however, and a large burden falls on the employee to be safe. Now, we're going to talk about OSHA. We're going to talk about the new OSHA requirements. We're going to talk about the suggestions from the CDC. Um, the main things to do, ensure you have a safety protocol in place. It should be in writing. Um, have a written policy outlining your safety protocol. That way, if something does happen, you have something to point to. You have something to educate employees with. Um, there are a lot of questions. What does adequate training mean? The Commonwealth has put out guidance saying you must adequately train to reopen. Well, what is adequate training? It's very basic. Um, if you take a look at mass.gov, there's a checklist. And that checklist, essentially, if you train your employees to maintain social distancing, maintain basic safety protocol, washing their hands, uh, et cetera, it seems that that would satisfy it. There's no actual guidance as to what that means right now, and it's very vague. So we all have to use our best judgment. Um, we've been putting together written policies for our clients, which are much more detailed than what the Commonwealth would probably require. Um, but we wanna make sure that people are being safe and that they aren't getting sick. Um, performing a safety analysis to understand your known risks. Um, if you aren't gonna be able to have social distancing um, at a hundred percent level across the board all the time, um, understanding and adjusting for those risks is essential. Um, and then we're going to talk about, uh, the legal framework guiding acceptable and mandatory, um, um, conditions to ensure safety in, in a few minutes. So what is your safety analysis? What laws have to be followed? What employees, what do we do if we, uh, to, if we think an employee is sick, uh, what precautions can we take in the workplace and what else can we do? And we're going to walk through those. So what does the CDC do? Legal framework. Um, the CDC can really only medically examine people entering a country or traveling between states to prevent the spread of a disease. Otherwise, the CDC's guidance and policies are non-mandatory. Um, They're just guidance to federal, state, and local health authorities. That's an important thing to understand. So who sets and enforces health and safety rules for employers? OSHA. And we'll talk about what OSHA has put out there as a result. And state and local government, which we're seeing in the Commonwealth and we're seeing in other states. So some states have stay-at-home orders. And when Barbara, Chris, and I were preparing, we said, well, what exactly are Governor Baker's um, orders? Are they orders? Are they mandatory? Or are they guidance and suggestions? And there's been a lot of confusion about that in the Commonwealth. Um, and we'll talk about that a bit today as well. Um, and then there are presidential executive orders. So the Defense Production Act, um, if you represent um, meat suppliers, for example, if you are in-house at a meat supplier, um, you know, you've been um, following very closely uh, the Defense Production Act executive orders, but uh, we would say the vast majority of employees in the workforce, especially employees going back into the workforce now are not subject to executive orders at this time. So what does the CDC say? If you think someone's healthy, how do you, you know, what is the, the guard post for that? What are the guidelines? Um, 
if you have someone who was symptomatic, it's been at least 72 hours since they had no fever without using any medications um, and an improvement in respiratory symptoms for COVID and at least 10 days have passed since, since, the systems, since, since the symptoms first appeared. If they're asymptomatic, 10 days have passed since the date of their first positive COVID-19 test, because how else would you know if you were asymptomatic? And if it's test-based, you need two straight tests um, of, uh, coming out negative, collected at least 24 hours apart. If someone is suspected to be sick under the CDC, it's all the basic things you've been seeing on the news. If someone has a cough, shortness of breath, fever, chills, muscle pain, sore throat, or a new loss of taste or smell, um, you need to suspect that they are sick and take preventative measures as an employer. Interesting, other than a new loss of taste or smell or shortness of breath, really, um, these are just basic things that happen if someone catches a cold. So there's just going to be a lot of uh, confusion and people being sent home for two weeks, um, about two weeks, if they're suspected to be sick. Um, problems identified by the CDC. Um, if you've been in close contact with someone who has tested positive for COVID-19, you should quarantine for 14 days. That would be work from home. Um, and when we're talking about a scenario where employees are coming back into the workplace, the likelihood is someone will get sick, someone will be exposed, people will have to go back home and work from home again. So you wanna make sure that you have your work from home plan still in place. It may not affect everybody, but it will certainly affect some people. Uh, for CDC, the potentially infectious period begins 48 hours before symptoms. So that's um, as far as who you would have to send home as being suspect suspected sick or who you should send home. Um, and then uh, employers um, need to continue contact tracing as directed by the Department of Health or on their own. All right, a uh, an exposure control plan. And this is what we're talking about with what are you gonna do as an employer when you're bringing people back? You need to have a plan in place and protocol to send employees home if they can go home, uh, instituting con contact tracing to identify other employees that may have been exposed, cleaning and sanitizing the workplace, uh, record keeping, keeping medical information outside of the personnel file. As we all know, there's a statute in Massachusetts um, and you wanna be able to have that record keeping available, uh, responding to complaints and reporting back to OSHA. Now, workplace steps and OSHA. Um, OSHA says, and OSHA, this is really OSHA's new guidance but OSHA is the law. OSHA is who you're going to be reporting back to in the event of a workplace uh, problem. So we have an obligation to provide people with a, health, with a healthy and safe workplace. Uh, so you have to configure areas so that employees are six feet apart in all directions. Um, they suggest physical barriers, strip curtains, plexiglass, increasing ventilation, uh, however they can uh, accomplish that. Hand wash, and, and one of the positive things is it's summer, so you have to be practical. Um, if you can open windows, you're increasing ventilation. Hand washing stations, hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol, and encouraging hand hygiene. This all sort of goes back to the Massachusetts suggestions um, proposed by, um, in the reopening plan, as far as what is it that you should be doing and how should you be training people. These all go together. 
Um, if you have time clocks, increase the number of clocks, use touch-free programming, have staggered arrival and departure, have wipes available so the time clock can be cleaned off. Think about a grocery store where people are going and um, touching the little pads at checkout, how there's someone there that's wiping them down often. Uh, redesigning break rooms and common areas to encourage worker separation. You should be doing that as an employer. Identifying alternative areas to accommodate overflow as well. Um, as far as administrative controls, um, this is incumbent on an employer now. The same way if you go down to Jamaica Pond, you'll see that there are one-way walking signs and the Commonwealth is encouraging and asking everyone to walk the same direction so that people are not walking across each other and breathing into each other's faces. Same thing in the workplace. Encourage single file movement, stagger arrivals, departures, and break times so people are not congregating. Um, discourage carpooling. People are just exposing themselves to each other. Um, have a system for alerting people to uh, illnesses in the workplace. Engage in the training the Commonwealth is requiring. These are OSHA suggestions, OSHA guidance. Um, evaluate the sick leave and incentive pay policies. Here in Massachusetts, we have a variety of them. Improve sanitation anywhere possible and engage in a systematic monitoring. Uh, if anyone's gotten a haircut since the Commonwealth reopened, uh, you may have been scanned with a, an infrared uh, temperature check machine. Um, OSHA is recommending temperature checks, whether self-initiated, infrared, or thermal. Uh, we have clients who are installing temperature check uh, machines, which are uh, thermal. You walk through it. Um, you don't even know it's there. And it's scanning for deviations in temperature that are abnormal. Uh, they're over you know, 99 or 100 degrees. Um, and then um, COVID-19 testing and antibody uh, testing is available. Um, the reality is that feasibility is not there yet because there's testing shortage. Some places have testing. You can go to a Quest Diagnostic Center and do it. Um, there's limited testing for asymptomatic people. There's a cost. And then people are just going back out and potentially being exposed again. So using testing, antibody testing, as a, a, a mechanism in and of itself to ensure safety is not going to work. Not right now. Uh, so recommended practices. Uh, generally, the government orders are mandatory, although there'll be a discussion about that because in Massachusetts, there's a question about what exactly is mandatory and what is not. Um, wellness checks is obviously a recommended practice by OSHA. Um, signage, um, social distancing and PPE requirements being enforced and those requirements being treated as a condition of employment. Right, so removal from work without pay going forward is the sanction. You have to pay for all time worked already. That's the standard wage and hour law. But the penalty can be you violated social distancing rules. You did not wear your protective devices. That puts other people at risk. It is a purely um, disciplinary matter because you violated workplace rules. Uh, you know, Chris is going to talk a bit about the union aspects of this, but in a non-unionized environment, um, really the employer dictates the terms and conditions of employment with respect to safety. And um, if the employer is gonna get blamed for safety issues, the employer can turn around and tell employees, if you refuse to follow the safety protocol that we've put out here for you, 
um, you know, we're going to have to discipline you for it. If an employer, uh, if an employee doesn't want to return to work, um, it's saying that you don't feel safe is not a justifiable reason to not come back to work. Um, an employer can choose to let people work remotely. An employer can generally also require that the employee come back unless they fall under some, you know, of the leave rules, which we're going to go over a little later. Um, or if it has to be an accommodation, which Barbara's going to talk about because the person is high risk potentially. Um, but a, a totally healthy person with no other reason why they would not come back to work other than fear is not actually a reason to not return to work. Um, we've received a lot of questions about that. What do we do? Um, generally, it can be treated as a disciplinary matter as well. Um, so if an employee refuses to return, you don't have to pay them. You don't have to let them use PTO or vacation generally. Um, they may be eligible for Massachusetts mandatory sick leave or family time. Um, if they, if they may uh, qualify for the family's first leave or emergency paid sick leave. Um, refusing to return to work, interestingly, should disqualify the employee from receiving unemployment benefits when essentially at this point, pretty much anybody uh, can get unemployment benefits. This is one of the only ways that you would disqualify yourself. Um, and just a couple last points. Uh, unless immunity protection laws are put into place, employers are going to most likely be sued for allegedly insufficient safety protocol and procedures, which is why we think it's so important that clear policies be put into place. And then um, considering how management of OSHA reporting and record keeping um, and workers' comp may be helping or harming future defenses is essential. Um, you should really be talking to counsel about that. And then uh, ju just because at a, in a, at a practical level, compliance with OSHA and workers' comp um, is generally highly technical, and but often um, in the workplace, in-house counsel would deal with OSHA or workers' comp sometimes without engaging outside counsel. They've never, the same as outside counsel, has never had to deal with COVID and the effects and how it dovetails with workers' comp laws. Workers' comp exclusivity is a major issue right now if you're in-house um, or at a company. Um, you should be thinking to yourself, um, you know, what is it that is going to help or hurt workers' comp exclusivity from applying? And then um, you need to be considering how your non-privileged internal communications where you're not engaging in-house counsel or outside counsel may be creating evidence of uh, work-related issues relative to COVID-19. So with that, um, I'll turn it over to Barbara. I think, I think actually uh, Chris is on. I am. Um, let's see where we are in the slides. Sorry, I'll just uh, just putting them up right now. Sure. Thank you. So thanks, Chris. Um, I'm going to be talking about a couple of issues. One, um, I'm going to be talking about discrimination issues. And then as Chris referenced, I'm going to be talking about some some labor issues. Um, 
that's that that you need to be aware of as you um, that, that there's some prevalent issues even for uh, unionized employers, but also non-unionized workplaces that you need to be aware of in the um, in this new in this new world um, post um, the 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 post um, COVID world. Um, let's see. Oh, there we go. Um, so. Chris was talking about a lot of the workplace safety rules. And unfortunately, a lot of them raise some really thorny issues when it comes to discrimination. Um, you know, when we talk about testing or gathering medical information, um, there's not only going to be state law requirements on that, but there's also going to be you know, the, the EEOC's guidance and, 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 and requirements under the ADA about how, when and how you can request that information and, um, and how that information is stored. Um, the EEOC has put out some guidance on for employers in dealing with the, the, the COVID-19 um, pandemic, which is great. Um, it's been really helpful and I think it's been pretty straightforward. Um, and the EEOC has come out and said, "Listen, you know, you the employers protect employers' actions in this situation um, are considered generally, you know, if they're within the bound, if they're reasonable and limited in scope, are considered part of the exceptions to the to the rule against medical inquiries, is being, you know, business business." a business necessity and uh, assessment of the uh, protection of, of employers from a direct threat. So um, one of the questions that's been coming up a lot is what can, can we do a, if can we inquire of people whether they are experiencing COVID related symptoms or whether they um, have been diagnosed with COVID, if they've tested positive for COVID and generally under the EEOC's rules, the answer is yes. Before returning people to work, you can ask them these people who have been out, who've been teleworking or been furloughed, you can ask them questions related to this. As long as the certifications and questionnaires are drafted narrowly and required of all employees, so you're not discriminating who's having to file these. Now, if you if you if you did a a had a uh, test but only required people who were um, of certain nationalities or certain races to fill them out because you you know you believe that there was some assessment that, that you know, certain communities have been more affected by this, that, that would not fly. Um, but if you're requiring them of everyone and they're drafted narrowly, you're not asking for more information than you need to assess whether somebody is potentially contagious in the workplace, then those certifications and questionnaires should be fine. Temperature checks, they can measure if somebody has a fever at a certain point in time. Um, uh, they're not perfect uh, by any means, and they're not a, a an alternative to the infection control measures that and prevention measures that um, that Chris laid out earlier. But if you're testing everyone, generally that's going to be fine. Um, but you, there are some some employers need to think about who's going to do the testing. Does the person who's doing the testing know how to do the machine? Are they properly trained? Are they going to have appropriate PPE? Um, you know, wage and hour laws, as Chris mentioned, you know, is the time compensable? Um, are you going to get consents? Um, a lot of this is, are, uh, there are some administrative issues that you should think about before um, these things are going to be implemented, but generally they're okay. And the EEOC says the temperature checks are okay 
um, as long as uh, people are being um, being um, uh, subject to the same rules. Um, also testing, as, as Chris mentioned, testing, EEOC says testing is permissible as long as you're using reliable and accurate tests. So you can't, the, the COVID-19 crisis isn't, a, isn't a, an excuse for you to, um, so for an employer to subject a, a employees to tests that are uh, not reliable predictors of, of, of detecting COVID cases of COVID-19. Um, but, you know, antibody testing, to the extent that you have access to those, um, the swabs the, the, that can test actually for active infections, those things would be, if, you, if employers do have access to them, they would be, um, they would be permissible under the EEOC's guidance. And the EEOC's guidance was clear that you can ask for fitness and duty, for duty or return to work certifications if you're requiring them of all employees, but the guidance is clear that we that employers need to be flexible. Um, the the healthcare system is strained because of COVID nineteen. Things are not operating as as normal, so it's not as easy for an employee to go get a doctor's note and bring it back to you as you as it was before the COVID nineteen um, pandemic hit. So it's expected that if employers are not imposing or not acting reasonably in their requests for documentation, that that could create that could could create some problems for employers at the uh, EEOC and I would say the MCAD as well. But all the although these preventative measures are are acceptable in in the circumstances we've just been discussing, it's important to remember that the ADA and state laws have confidentiality requirements when it comes to employee medical records. You know, you need to be, if you're to say you're keeping record of temperatures or COVID tests, these have to be kept as you would keep at confidential any other employee medical record. So they're not going into the personnel file. You're keeping them in a separate locked file with um, limited access to those files, um, as you would anytime you get uh, confidential medical information re regarding an employee. Um, now. At a certain point, we're going to have to decide. Um, sorry, I, I I I clicked through too quickly, so I'm trying to go backwards and see if I can do it. There we go. Here we go. The wonders of uh, of modern technology. So, assuming that you you have you are are authorized to open and you have a plan in place that ensures that you're gonna ensure a safe workplace for your employees, you have to decide who's gonna come back. Um, ideally, I, mean, I think realistically, if we use the Massachusetts uh, uh, return to work plan as a guide, um, workplaces are not gonna be at capacity anytime soon. Choices are gonna have to be made about who you bring back and in what order you bring them back. Um, so there are a number of, 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 of um, factors you could use in deciding who to come back. Business necessity, obviously clear. You're going to have certain positions where you feel it's a business necessity to bring people back as opposed and have them in a physical location as opposed to telework. So um, those are going to be uh, clear in terms of making decisions among among people in various um, in various certain positions. Um, you could consider using you know, doing on a voluntary measure. Some people want to come back sooner than others. They feel they're more productive in the workplace than they are at home. Uh, uh, you could do it on a seniority level basis. As long as it's a legitimate non-discriminatory factor, you want it's going to be fine. I've been getting a lot of questions about what to do, what employers should do about high-risk workers. Um, 
employers for discrimination purposes don't do not want to adopt rules that ban or preclude high risk attorney uh, employees from returning to the workplace. Um, it's if if the employees expresses a concern to you, um, or if you know an employee is uh, in a high risk group has a pre existing medical condition or is pregnant or is over age of 65, it may be worth having a conversation with the employee about what their wishes are. But it would be problematic to adopt rules that say anybody over 65 is not permitted to return to work if that person wants to return to work. Um, it, it, it's, you can, you should think about whether we can talk about whether accommodating those employees is required and how you would do that. But um, you want to be sure that you are um, not adopting these blanket rules. You also want to focus on even though you're using non-discriminatory factors, you want to make sure that you know, the factors you're choosing are not having a, an adverse impact on certain groups. This is the difference between disparate treatment and disparate impact. So you may have a, a, a neutral, um, a neutral uh, way of, that you think is neutral of deciding who's gonna come back. But if you look at it, it's resulting in only men coming back or only white men coming back, only you know, younger employees coming back. Um, you need to look at the criteria you're using and figuring out, okay, why are we doing this? Is this a business, is this a legitimate business reason or are we um, masking some type of discriminatory, um, discriminatory animus that we're not aware of? Is there a discriminatory effect that we're having on our workplace? Um, and on top of deciding who's gonna come back, you have to, in terms of your preference of who's gonna come back, you have to be aware of what to do if somebody says they do not want to come back or they can't come back or they can only come back at limited capacity in limited capacities so obviously uh chris talked about people with covid19 or covid19 symptoms it's perfectly fine to keep those employees out of the workplace but what if somebody doesn't have an active case of covid19 or is experiencing covid19 systems but they have a pre-existing medical condition you're going to want to have a plan for how you're going to treat people who come to you with concerns about pre-existing medical conditions same thing with pregnant employees employees over 65 employees who don't have child care or elder care um, that now that um, certain businesses are closed or child care facilities are closed and then you want to deal with the high risk how do you deal with the non-high risk employees who fear infection obviously chris talked touched a little bit upon that um, but um, there may be issues where you have to be a little cautious of those employees. So let's talk about employees with disabilities who put them at high risk for COVID-19. So they may require accommodation and under the law, you would have to provide that accommodation. Um, if, um, if you are, um, if you are, um, if an employee has a disability that makes them, puts them at high risk for contracting COVID, you have to provide a reasonable accommodation unless doing so would pose an undue hardship to you. And that's going to depend on the facts of the circumstances, the facts and circumstances of that particular employee's job and your workplace. Um, and you're going to have to engage in the interactive process with those employees. Um, you can't just automatically dismiss a request for accommodation. Um, and that's the end of it. If somebody comes to you with a reasonable accommodation and you don't think it's a reasonable accommodation or it would cause a new hardship, you can you, you need to go back and have a conversation with the employee and figure out is there an alternative accommodation that would meet that employee's needs. Um, you can still ask for medical documentation, but again, um, if the disability is not already known or obvious, but you want to be 
mindful that the current health situation with respect to the healthcare system demands that there be some flexibility there. And then we now have been in a phase where employees, some have been teleworking for over two months, some have been on leaves of absence, essentially on furloughs for more than two months. Um, and you um, now have a, a, are going to have a harder time arguing that, uh, that those types of leaves of uh, those types of accommodations are undue hardships to you. Um, so you want to keep that in mind. The past two the past two months have provided you a track record in, in, in as to positions that may be able to telework that you didn't think you had before. So you have to be mindful of how the past two months have impacted um, how businesses are operating. Also, um, you know, everyone's, the, the states are requiring face coverings um, in the workplace. Um, you want to be clear that some employees may need accommodations um, just because there's a requirement or is a recommendation of the state that everyone wear face masks. Um, if somebody has a disability or has a, a sincerely held religious belief that precludes you from, from wearing a mask, you have to engage in the interactive process with those employees before and determine whether accepting those employees from the uh, the rule is a is a reasonable accommodation. Um, you can't just say no. You can't just say everyone has to wear a mask. If somebody comes to you and um, says, "I have a disability" or "I have a sincerely held religious belief that precludes me from doing that," um, reminder that pregnancy is not a disability, so um, you don't have to treat pregnant employees the same way that you would treat a, somebody with a disability, but pregnant workers are entitled to accommodate, accommodations under Massachusetts law, and they are under other state laws too. Um, so you want to be aware of what the law requires in your, in the location where you are, um, where the, where the employee is, if a pregnant employee requests an accommodation. Now, if a pregnant employee in Massachusetts requests an accommodation, says, I want to telework for the next two, three months, um, because I'm at high risk given my pregnancy and they have medical documentation to support it, I think you'd be hard, and that person has been teleworking for the, the past two months, I think you'd be hard pressed to argue that you can't, that offering that accommodation would be an undue burden. Um, there's no statutory obligation to accommodate older workers, but it, this is that COVID has presented this really complicated situation where there are recommendations that, that, that we, employers take steps to exclude high-risk employees from the workplace. My recommendation about older workers is if you have a worker that's over 65, have a conversation with that employee whether you're pre preparing to return to work and consider whether remote work is a possibility if that person does not feel comfortable coming back into the workplace. Um, you want to make sure that you're complying with CDC guidance and state orders, but at the same time, there's no state Man or federally mandated obligation to accommodate older workers. But you don't want to treat them differently. You treat other employees in a, in a negative way. But at the same time, if you want to comply with state orders and guidance, I think you need to be a little more flexible when it comes to employees over, 40, over 65. Um, and then to touch again on discrimination against people who aren't high risk, but at the same time just fear infection and don't want to report. To work. Um, generally, if you are providing for a safe workplace, then those people do not have protections. But labor, federal labor law is one area that provides employees with 
protections if they don't want to work in unsafe or unhealthy work conditions. Um, and this isn't particularly a problem if somebody's engaging in protected concerted activity and trying to organize employees um, or, or talking to their, uh, their coworkers and saying, hey, we don't think these conditions are safe. You, you have to be tread very carefully before making a determination about what you're going to do with those employees. You have to make an assessment as to whether they pose a risk for a potential unfair labor practice charge. Same thing with OSHA. OSHA permits employees to refuse to perform work where there's an they, 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 where they, they, there's an eminent danger to them. Um, that standard is kind of tough to meet, particularly if you're following OSHA guidelines and CDC guidance. Um, I think it would be hard pressed for an employee to somehow suggest they're in imminent danger. Um, but again, you wanna make sure you understand why people aren't returning to work. And if people say, I'm a fearing infection, you want to delve into that to understand, are they complaining about something specifically in the workplace? And if they are, you want to make sure, okay, are we addressing that issue? Have, are we thinking about this? Is this person raising a good faith concern? Um, because if they are, then you have a potential and, and you say, you know, tough luck, this is, this is what we're doing. Um, you have to return to work and they refuse and terminate. That's potentially, you're potentially looking at a retaliation, unfair labor practice, whistleblower type charge. Um, and just a, a quick uh, mention about hiring, um, you know, if you're hiring, if you delay start dates because people have COVID or COVID-19 symptoms, that's fine. If, if the EEOC has said, if somebody can't start on the time frame that they're supposed to, that you need somebody to start because of they have COVID or COVID-19 symptoms, it's acceptable to withdraw the offer. Um, and then you want to be clear, however, that you're not refusing your prior employees. You want to make sure that people over 65 or pregnant people or people in certain groups who are seen as being the, 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 the COVID-19 virus has been seen having a more prevalent effect. Um, you've seen at the beginning of the crisis where it was emanating from uh, China and Italy, you saw a lot of um, concerns about anti-Asian bias in, the in employment. Um, you've been having a lot of issues with respect to, um, you having a lot of issues with respect to um, concerns about how this is gonna impact older, older workers and people are gonna be concerned about hiring older workers. That's gonna be a concern. Um, so you gotta be careful about that. I think you're gonna see some claims stemming from that type of discrimination out of coming out of this crisis. And then finally, just to note, I just wanna note quickly that this, if you um, if you are a unionized workplace, before you're making the changes that Chris was talking about, you want to look at your CBA to make sure, or your client CBA to make sure that you the employers have the authority to make changes to the terms and conditions of employment. Generally, there are health and safety laws where the provisions where that allows employees to um, to to make those changes. Uh, employers to make those changes, um, but you have to be uh, generally. If there there may be some changes that you have to bargain about the with the union about about the effects, um, even if you are permitted to make the change, some bargaining may be required. Um, the pandemic has presented organization opportunities for labor unions. Labor unions historically have thrived in air in times when people feel insecure in the workplace, particularly where there are health and safety issues. Um, so I think this, this is gonna present an opportunity for new organization drives. Um, and so you wanna be keeping ear to the ear to the ground, know what's going on in your workplace and making sure that you're addressing employee concerns if, um, or your clients are addressing employee concerns um, 
to so that they feel heard and don't feel so that they have to turn to a union representation in order to be heard. And then um, you're going to see an increased risk for unfair labor practice charges. Some of them have recently been filed. They've been made the news. People um, being terminated for um, what's claimed to be um, have speaking of unfair safe unsafe working conditions. Um, people claiming that they were terminated for engaging in in protected concerted activity. Um, charges are going to result and in from this environment. So employers want to proceed cautiously when anyone is raising concern about health and safety issues. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Barbara. Great, thank you. Okay, I'm just looking for the. Uh, hold on. Okay, sorry about that. Okay, so I'm gonna be talking about um, employees requesting reasonable accommodations. Um, and I'm just, hold on a second, sorry. Yeah, I'm just looking for the windows. Thanks. Okay. Um, so employee comes to me and says, you know, I, I have a fear of um, going back to work. Uh, you know, I've been, I've been working fine remotely and I, I want to ask my employer for a reasonable accommodation um, of going, you know, not having to go back to work to continue to work remotely. So the first question is, you know, does this employee uh, have a disability protected under the ADA or Chapter 151B? Uh, number one, broad, broad overview. Uh, is the employer covered by 151B? Do they have six or more employees? Um, or are they covered by the ADA? Do they have 15 or more employees? Um, number two, the employee must be qualified, meaning they, they have a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. Um, and, and they're still able to perform the essential functions of the job with or without reasonable accommodation. The accommodation has to be uh, reasonable and effective in aiding you to perform the essential functions of the job and won't cause undue hardship on the employer. Okay, so next slide. Thank you. Um, so examples of physical impairments that may qualify. Um, heart disease, uh, lung disease, including asthma. Um, I've seen some commentary that asthma is not a disability. That's, that's not correct. Asthma is an impairment that, that can be a disability if it's substantially limiting major life functions like breathing, exercising, for example, the MCAD has recognized this, as well as the EEOC guidance has recognized this. Um, diabetes, cancer, uh, MS. Um, these are all examples of physical impairments that may qualify you know, if an employee um, is concerned that um, coming back to the workplace is gonna expose their risk to COVID-19 and, and cause them to get sick cause them to have complications. Um, the next slide, please. Thank you. Um, so what about if an employee doesn't have any of those physical impairments, um, do they have any mental impairments that may qualify? Um, some examples of this can be post-traumatic stress disorder, 
um, obsessive compulsive disorder, depression, um, major depressive disorder is, is recognized in the amendments to the ADA. Um, depression, what if it's not major depressive disorder or it's not severe depression? Depression can still be, uh, may qualify as, as an impairment um, that qualifies as a disability if it substantially limits major life activities such as concentrating or sleeping. Um, and uh, also an anxiety disorder, uh, not anxiety generally, but an anxiety disorder, diagnosed disorder. Um, this has been recognized uh, in the EEOC guidance as, as well as some MCAD decisions. Um, you know, an employee may, may be concerned that um, coming to the workplace is gonna increase their anxiety, anxiety and panic so much that they won't be able to concentrate. And therefore they need the reasonable accommodation to continue to work remotely um, or other reasonable accommodations. But I think the big one that's gonna come up is continuing to work remotely in order to be able to concentrate um, and, and, and do their job effectively. Okay, so next slide. Um, so continuing in, in the analysis, examples of reasonable accommodations are in addition to working remotely, um, allowing to work from home maybe most of the days and reducing um, the exposure uh, of, of the risk or some of the days. Uh, another potential accommodation is providing parking to avoid use of mass transit um, or adjustment of work hours to minimize exposure. Um, Okay, sorry, next slide please. Okay, so if the employee does not have a, a disability that's covered under 151B um, or the ADA, the next level of inquiry is, um, can you make an accommodation request pursuant to Governor Baker's um, phase, phase one plan of reopening offices, um, which uh, is, June 1st for Boston and, and uh, was May 25th for the rest of the Commonwealth. Um, if, as, as Chris has already discussed, if you are in a high risk population as defined by the CDC, uh, Governor Baker's um, plan says you should work from home if possible and get priority consideration for workplace accommodations. So if someone is, um, uh, you know, immunocompromised because they've had, um, they're fully recovered, but they've had um, chemotherapy treatment for cancer, for example, um, or they're 65 or older, and they come to the employer and say, you know, pursuant to Governor Baker's plan, I would like to work from home. Um, you know, that's, that's something that I think um, should absolutely be provided pursuant to the plan. Um, employees should put those requests in writing, and I think employers are going to have a tough time saying that these are not reasonable accommodations if an employee has been working productively and effectively for the last two months from home. Okay, next slide, please. Thank you. Um, having trouble, technical problems with moving the slides, so I apologize. 
Um, so, uh, you know, another, uh, the previous slide, I think, talked about um, if the employee is, is not high risk, but, um, uh, you know, is not high risk, doesn't have a pre-existing condition uh, that falls within the CDC's guidance from working from home, I think you can still make a request to pursuant to Governor Baker's plan with regard to, um, uh, you know, that the employer should not have more than 25% of occupancy and that the plan also strongly encourages that employees continue to work from home. I think it's, uh, you know, if you're not, if you don't have a, a disability that's protected um, or you're not a high risk individual, you should still make the request pursuant to the plan, especially if the employer is having trouble staying within the, you know, the 25%. Um, but it's certainly reasonable to make, make that request pursuant to the plan, um, at least for the next three weeks or however long the plan phase one is in effect. Um, those two uh, requirements, uh, I would call them, I think um, have to be complied with. Uh, in, in terms of encouraging workers to, to work from home. Um, what about accommodation requests due to a family member's disability or being at high risk? So this is an area that's, that's really difficult. Um, it's, it's likely not protected unless it's a request for leave under the FMLA or the Families First uh, Coronavirus Response Act. Um, I would still make the request pursuant to the CDC guidance or Governor Baker's plan, I think, and do so in writing. Um, you know, if you've got a family member who's ill, it, I think an employer is going to be hard pressed to to deny it and and you know risk uh, you know that family member um, getting sick and and uh, even worse dying due to due to COVID. Um, okay, so ready for the next slide. Okay, so some potential claims, and I'm going to cruise through this because Chris already covered a lot of this and um, want to leave enough time for questions. Um, obviously, discrimination claims Chris covered, you know, you want to be treating, um, you know, everyone similarly. Um, if, if, if you fail to provide the reasonable accommodation, that obviously gives rise to a claim. If you retaliate or or start treating a, an employee in a hostile manner because they requested a reasonable accommodation, that's also unlawful even though you allowed the accommodation. Um, uh, also biased assumptions based on disability. If you're assuming that certain employees, uh, you know, should not come back to the office, um, you know, that that's also a potentially uh, a, a biased assumption based on uh, disability. Um, Chris also covered, you know, discrimination based on race and, and other ethnicities, um, discrimination based on gender biases. I have seen some scenarios where predominantly uh, folks who are kind of being pressured to come back to work are, are males and women are, are being allowed to work from home. Um, you know, you can, you can see that the, the bias there, the stereotype that's, that's potentially getting applied to that scenario. Okay, uh, next slide, please. Thank you. Um, termination violation of public policy. You know, I think this is one we may see a lot of um, if employees are asking 
for a request pursuant to, uh, you know, reasonable accommodation requests to work from home, for example, pursuant to Governor Baker's plan um, and mandatory safety standards. Um, and that's and that's denied, and, and the employee is essentially, you know, terminated or constructively discharged. You know, this could give rise to a termination violation of public policy claim, especially if, um, you know, uh, the OSHA standards are violated as well. Um, you know, uh, there is this debate about is this a is this law, is this an order, or is it a guide? Is it guidance? Um, and therefore, would it give rise to a pub public policy claim? You know, public policy claims, um, the common law says that there has to be a statutory basis um, for the public policy. And, you know, I think here uh, the governor's power is clearly uh, set forth not only in the Constitution, but in statutes, and therefore um, issuing these orders um, has absolutely the power and effect of law. And I think if these requests are denied or, or results in a constructive um, discharge uh, due to a denial, you're going to be at risk for um, termination and violation of public policy. Um, and other potential claims, obviously, violations of the FMLA and retaliation claims to be mindful of, um, in addition to OSHA, the public employees whistleblower statute, as well as the healthcare workers. Um, whistleblower statute may come into play. And with that, um, I think we're going to open it up for questions. So um, we have one question from a participant, which is um, that they said that they know that that um, a number of people will be requesting working from home as an accommodation a lot more in the future. And that um, despite the pact, the track record of the past two months, you know, supervisors and management will try to push back on allowing working from home. How do you suggest that I advise such management? So Chris, Barbara, do you have thoughts about that? Sure. Um, yeah, go ahead. From the employer perspective, um, every accommodation request needs to be treated on its own merits. Um, you need to look at the very specific facts um, relating to each person's request and why they're making it. Generally, um, an employer can require that an employee come into work. An accommodation, there's a presupposition that there's a need for the employee to work from home. So that's why I, I, I think the question is a little bit of a different one. It's what is it that requires the employee to, um, to not be able to come in and evaluate it that way? Um, I think an accommodation that may previously not have been reasonable, but for some advances in technology may be reasonable all of a sudden. Um, but you know, I'll turn it over to Chris or Barbara if they have any thoughts. You're on mute, Chris. Chris, you're on mute. Ah, now I'm, okay, that's better. Um, uh, so now as somebody who's regularly um, advising employers on these issues, I can tell you I, um, if you're in-house counsel and you need to get people to focus on that, I would talk about um, the very, very um, 
I would say employer friendly standards that employee friendly standards that apply to accommodation requests. And I would focus on the potential for, um, for significant liability. Um, and you really want to drill down. Um, I see when you focus on the facts and focus on the, the, the essential functions of an employee's job and you sit down with a manager and say, okay, tell me why work put somebody couldn't do this from working from home, this from working from home, this from working from home. And you break it down, then you'll get people to see that, okay, maybe my initial reaction to allowing to, to reluctance to, to, um, to work a work from home arrangement or telework is, um, is going to be, it what was, was not, you know, based on the actual um, job description. But I also think it's really important to tell managers, hey, listen, we have two months where people did their job. Tell me what was lacking in the last two months of the person doing their job. Tell me in what ways they weren't satisfying the essential functions of their job. And we'll talk about it. Um, just because somebody was working from home during when, when business, workplaces were closed, that doesn't mean, um, that doesn't mean, you know, you have to provide the accommodation, but like I said, it provides a strong track record and Barbara said, provides a strong track record to suggest that the job can be done remotely. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you both said. I think it's a case by case analysis. It can't be just a blanket refusal. You have to look at each employee's specific situation and analyze that situation and, and, take this, you know, walk those, those analytical steps through case by case. Everybody's job is different. So. Um, somebody asked about um, uh, COVID liability waivers, having employees sign those. I have some thoughts. <laughs> I can imagine you guys too. What do you guys think about those? Go for it. I'm dying to hear. Well, I mean, I think that they're not worth the paper that they're written on because it's, um, I know a lot of employers want to do them um, and say, hey, listen, person, assume the risk of coming into the workplace. Um, I don't think any court's going to say, it's going to uphold those types of waivers because so much is going to be dependent. You can't, you can't preemptively release claims. And so if an employer engages in negligence um, and because of an employer's negligence, um, somebody contracts COVID, um, then I mean, the, the, I don't think the I don't think a waiver is going to protect the employer. That being said, um, I'm not as concerned about um, if employers are behaving responsibly and adhering to CDC guidelines and state orders. I'm not I'm not one of these people who's particularly concerned about this fear of a Russia litigation for. Um, uh, uh, for cases that occur in the workplace, um, there's, you know, a, there's a really good chance that any claims would be barred by workers' comp. Um, and even if there isn't, um, I, I think it would be difficult for an employee to show, given the community spread, it would be very difficult for an employee to prove um, in a court of law that the exposure happened at work and it was because of something that the, uh, some negligence that the employer had engaged in. Barbara, do you disagree or please disagree? <laughs> I want to have I mean, this I fight now. I, th I think getting a, a COVID waiver is, is signaling to the employee that, you know, in a big way, we, we may not be able to keep you safe here. 
and and so you have to you know wave the risk and i think it's absolutely the wrong message you want to be sending and on multiple levels in multiple ways so i i would not i don't advocate for that um what about I, this is an interesting question too um what about somebody who doesn't have a disability or religious issue but says that they don't want to wear a mask in the workplace how do you handle that Barbara, if you had a client call you up and say, my stupid employer is making me wear a mask and I don't want to wear a mask, what do I do? <laughs> yeah, I think you have to, you know, you're going to want to fall back on some, you know, protected category, good reason for why you don't want to, whether it's uh, for religious reasons or health reasons or, you know, just saying I don't want to wear a mask is going to be, is going to be a tough a tough one um you know but i do think at the same time that everyone has to be and i think for the most part based on what i'm seeing people are being reasonable um so if there is a way to you know maybe accommodate you because you know for whatever reason you're having issues with wearing a mask maybe you feel you don't have claustrophobia, but it's making you feel claustrophobic, you know, sit down with your employer and have a discussion about that and talk about, you know, whether there's some way that can, you can work around it without putting anyone else at risk, like having, you know, a separate office or uh, something like, I, I think that it's it's worth raising, not making a demand over, but raising as, as a, having a conversation about it to see what's possible because i think for the most part people are trying to be reasonable uh, make people feel safe and comfortable and and try to approach it from that vantage point yeah unfortunately i think i i appreciate the person who asked this question because unfortunately um there are, uh the issue of masks is becoming in, over, even since we've planned this program the issue of wearing a mask in the workplace has become highly politicized um, and you're going to have employees who are refusing to do it. I think um, just like any other workplace safety rule, any other OSHA requirement, if, if the government is making a strong recommendation that your workers wear PPE, including face coverings, I think you have to treat it just like somebody coming into you and saying, I don't want to wear work boots on a work site. I mean, it's just, it's not feasible if somebody, if somebody, if my advice to employers is listen to employ, listen to the employee, hear them out, figure out, get, don't dismiss it out, out of hand, even though there may be an inclination to, um, you want to delve in to figure out what the reason is. If the reason is somebody thinks that COVID-19 is a hoax and they don't, um, and the government's overreacting, that's, I, in my view, that's not a legitimate excuse. I mean, you have a government recommendation, you have public health safety recommendations, employers are allowed to impose workplace rules. And if somebody doesn't want to do it, they don't have to work for you. With respect to the last two questions, there's a commonality. Um, do you really want to have waivers that indicate you can't provide a safe workplace in the event that you get investigated by OSHA? So we have a lot of clients that are asking these questions and we're sort of taking a multidisciplinary approach and saying, think about it big picture. Is a waiver a presumptive waiver of liability or assumption of risk form 
Is that going to cause you bigger problems with respect to workers' comp? Is it going to cause you problems with OSHA down the road in the event that there's an outbreak of COVID in the workplace, despite your compliance with CDC recommendations and your safe behavior? Um, and then think about the employee who says, I'm not going to wear a mask. That's purely a disciplinary matter unless there's some true rationale for it. The employer has the right to impose safety requirements, and they have to. And they have to because the employer ultimately is on the hook. So, you know, if the employee cannot have a face mask on because it gives them trouble breathing for some reason, maybe they can't be in the workplace and the reasonable accommodation is that they have to work from home. And if they can't do their job from home, but they can't wear a face covering and there's nowhere for them to work safely without exposing other people, maybe it's not a reasonable accommodation. It's the prototypical standard reasonable accommodation uh, process, the interactive dialogue that you should be going through. I mean, Barbara, is that, is that right from the plaintiff's side? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that that's a, a reasonable approach to it. Um, you know, as I said before, I think it, you have to uh, ask about what the reason is. And if it's getting into a, a disability, potentially like claustrophobia, or there's some you know, maybe asthma and difficulty breathing and it's making it worse or an anxiety disorder, you know, if you're, if that is, those are the areas that the employers is getting into, then, you know, you have to think about reasonable accommodations. Um, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, it, it, I think it just comes down to reasonableness and, and wanting to maintain a, a compliant, uh, safe working environment for everyone. Um, so we've, go ahead. I think we've gone over our time, Daniel. So should we, should, should we wrap up? Um, if you could wrap up in the next five minutes, that would work perfectly. <laughs> five minutes. Well, okay. Maybe we'll take, take on one more question. Um, Chris, this one's directed specifically to you. You mentioned an employer uh, uh, contract tracing. Can you elaborate on what information employers can require from their employees to disclose and that if, that information can relate to private life events of the employees, for example, yeah, I, attending social gatherings. Yeah, I, I was talking more um, about in the workplace, internal contact tracing. So there's a big difference between um, reporting information back to a health department versus internally advising employees and engaging in contact tracing in the workplace. So yeah. if someone comes in and they're sick, our responsibility is to our workers. Our responsibility um, for the purpose of being an employer is not to the greater community. I mean, obviously, you expect that um, an employer is going to comply with whatever reporting requirements apply in their respective jurisdictions, which are um, dictated uh, by state ordinance, state law, state regulations, um, municipalities, localities. But in the workplace, it's really a gathering information about where have you been, who have you been in touch with, and then advising those employees that they've been exposed and yeah, treating I them accordingly. I think it's a different question. I do too. I mean, okay. I can say as an employer, as somebody who represents employers, I think I've been recommending from the beginning of this that if you find out you have a positive test or you, somebody's displaying symptoms, you find out who they interacted with in the workplace during the last 14 days. You know, who have you been? Can you tell me who you've been more than six feet away from? Um, who have you handed documents to? Um, and, 
Um, who have you had conversations with? Can you recall? And then you can make an assessment about the information that you can provide. I've been recommending that employers get waivers, HIPAA waivers from, or HIPAA-like waivers from employees um, to be able to disclose their identifying information. But I think you can do it without disclosing identifying information from the employee. But you don't want to get into where people are spending their weekends, you know, what if they're going to you know, you don't want to know if, where people are practicing their religion, you know, what bars and restaurants people are attending to. The more information you get about people's personal lives, the more likely they can use your knowledge of that as a, in a potential um, discrimination claim. Um, or as Barbara might, Barbara probably won't like the way I phrased that, but. That's one thing, fair. one one thing that I would point out is the only maybe, um, you know, extracurricular question you can ask is yeah, with whom have you interacted in the, from the workplace outside of work during this time period? Did you guys go right. to, a, you know, have you been to a bar together with a group of eight people from work and everyone was hanging out together and, you know, shoulder to shoulder, that might be fair game. Right. No details should be asked, but yeah, essentially, I think I would, yeah, my inclination would be limited to, have you have you social have you had any interactions outside of the workplace with anybody who's an employee? But because um, I know we have some employers where um, employees, you know, maybe roommates, they maybe they, there may be employee housing where people stay together. So that's a it, that's a, that's a good point, Chris. Well, unless anyone has anything else. Daniel, I think we're all set. Everyone, thank you for participating. Thank you for seeing us through these our, our tech, any technical issues we had. And um, you've been great with the questions. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very much.